0: Hi, you're listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan, Chicago. We're releasing our sermons so that no matter where you were Friday, you can enjoy a piece of Shabbat today. So take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy some words from Rabbi Dina.
1: Big sigh. That's what this week felt like for me, like the first time that I fully exhaled in, I don't know, years, four and a half years. It was one of those amazing weeks that felt like it was somehow both the culmination of something ending and also the dawn of something new, which, of course, for Judaism is totally natural. Judaism functions in cycles. Just to recap, this week we got a new president. We got a new VP who shattered so many glass ceilings as she raised her hand to take that oath. The violence that I know I was really worried might pan out didn't yet. Um, We did, in the end, see a peaceful transfer of power. Oh, also, I was featured on the Peloton blog and Instagram. (laughs) More on that later. As I listened to the inauguration, I was struck by the repetition of metaphors of light and darkness. I was like, this is perfect, I thought. They're just writing my drash for me. Julie talked earlier about light. Now I can just dig into darkness. I am dressed for the darkness tonight and I'm ready to dig into darkness. This week began with MLK Day, our annual tribute to the preacher and activist who taught us that darkness cannot drive out darkness. And then in the middle of the week, perhaps the apex of the week, Our ears were filled and our souls were filled with the prophetic words of our National Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman, who called us into the light of the present moment as she asked, when day comes we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? And we end this Shabbat, this week, with a Shabbat whose Parsha is all about darkness. This week's Parsha, which is Bo, tells the story of the last three plagues which biblical commentator Aviva Gottlieb Zorenberg says each have something to do with darkness. They're all fundamentally about darkness in some way. The locusts blotted out the land, and then there's a literal plague of darkness that permeates everything. And then Makat Bechorot, the plague of the death of the firstborn comes at night. And so these plagues make the metaphorical literal. It's a very dark story metaphorically. It's a very fearful, scary, almost evil time to be an Egyptian. And this Parsha is full of the land of Egypt being suffocated by darkness. The middle of these last three plagues, so really the second to last plague, the plague of actual oppressive darkness, sort of stands out from the rest. And I want to dig into that a little bit because the Torah describes the darkness as palpable, as something that can really literally be touched The Midrash teaches that when this darkness fell over Egypt, all of the Egyptians were frozen in place. Like if they were sitting when the darkness fell, they couldn't stand. And if they were standing, they couldn't sit and so on and so on. They were frozen exactly as they were. And so for three days, nobody could move. Nobody could see anything. Nobody could speak. All of the Egyptians were suspended, unmoving in space as time continued around them. It's the opposite of the way that Heschel describes Shabbat as being a time that we leave the physical world and enter time. They were frozen in the physical world. The plague of darkness that blotted out the world to the Egyptians, the Torah says it didn't touch the Israelites who still had light in their homes. They could still move around, they could still see. And one Midrash tells actually a very frightening story of the Israelites entering the Egyptian homes as the Egyptians were immobilized by the darkness and just taking inventory of the homes, which is sort of a foreshadowing for later when the Israelites are going to take all sorts of riches from the Egyptians as they leave. And the Egyptians, of course, were frozen by this darkness. They weren't able to respond, to call out. They couldn't see what was happening. It must have been terrifying to be an Egyptian in your own home, feeling someone else moving about and not being able to do anything about it, having absolutely no control. And Gottlieb Zornberg reads this sort of darkness, not as a phenomenon of nature. She reads this midrash and she says, this darkness wasn't a natural catastrophe or a natural occurrence. This was an, excuse me, an inner experience of each individual Egyptian. In her words, a catatonic terror of absolute helplessness. And so we lift our gaze not to what stands between us, but what stands before us, Gorman preached this week. We close the divide because we know to put our future first, we must first put our differences aside We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. This is exactly what the Egyptians could not do. And in the end, it trapped them in fear as they listened to their own neighbors and the victims that they oppressed survey their homes. The plague of darkness, it wasn't just an absence of light, right? It was like a vacuum that sucked out the possibility for light to even exist. The Italian commentator Sforno imagines this sort of palpable, paralyzing darkness as a physical transformation of the very air of Egypt that makes it incapable of absorbing light even in the morning. Right? So it's not that the sun didn't rise or that time stopped and so they were frozen at night. It's that the environment of Egypt rejected the very cycles of the sun or the very attempt to drive out darkness that even if the Egyptians could have moved and could have lit a candle, it would have had no effect. They wouldn't have been able to change that darkness at all. So maybe that's what Dr. King meant when he said that darkness cannot drive out darkness, that the Egyptians had become so accustomed to darkness metaphorically that the air around them began to manifest the mood. It just became incapable of doing anything but being dark. The darkness closed in around the Egyptians metaphorically until it began to close in literally enveloping them preventing them from changing which is after all exactly what God does to Pharaoh at first in the plagues we hear that Pharaoh is very stubborn right it's Pharaoh's fault that the plagues keep happening because Pharaoh is being stubborn about letting the Israelites go but after a few plagues God intervenes, God hardens Pharaoh's heart and makes him incapable of mercy or change. Even if he wanted to change his mind as his advisors beg him, he has become so entrenched in stubbornness that God has said, you are stuck in this stubbornness forever or until I say so, right? It's like God saying to Pharaoh, you reap what you sow. And the same to the Egyptians. You take no actions to try to redeem this people, So you're not able to lay down your arms and stretch out your arms, and I will make you incapable of movement. A month or so ago, I gave a drash about dreaming big dreams, even or especially when our circumstances feel immovable. And without knowing it at the time, that drash maybe was my way of combating the oppressive darkness that I was feeling a month ago. And in that drash, I asked each of you to think of your own big dream, something that for you was like a light in the darkness. This drash was just at the beginning of Hanukkah, so we were in darkness in a different way in the Jewish calendar. And I shared in that drash that my own big dream was to be a Peloton instructor. As I said at the beginning, on Sunday, that dream did not come true, but a little piece of it manifested itself in my life And I was featured on the Peloton blog and Instagram for being a rabbi. Right? It felt like the perfect little wink from the universe like, yeah, you put that dream out there. Here you go. I'm obviously not very good at winking, and I've been practicing. I did something brave in that sermon, and I shared and admitted something that felt like a silly dream to hundreds of people, and in return, I got to have a moment of being celebrated for being exactly myself and I made a move on my dream and instead of letting it sit in darkness in the dark back recesses of my brain, I moved that dream a little closer to reality when I spoke it out into the world and then the world shone a little light on my dream. Have any of you started to feel your dreams coming true in the last month or even just kind of winking at you a little bit? Have you felt new dreams starting to occur to you if you found them hard to articulate a month ago? I feel like this week was the first time that I also felt myself able to come up with dreams more easily. And since Wednesday morning, my social media feed has been filled with pictures of my friends, kids who are standing in front of a TV screen as Kamala Harris was sworn in as VP. And these pictures all have comments along the lines of like, I'm so proud to be able to watch this with my child and have them see that you can and be, you can do and be anything you want. May this be true. May all our little ones and may we ourselves find the courage and the bravery to dream big dreams and to go after them, even if we never achieve them. I don't actually think the achieving them is the important part. It's the dreaming them. I'm reading this awesome book called Bravy by an Olympic distance runner and filmmaker named Alexi Pappas. And she writes that any of us can be a bravey, right? Being a bravey is like being a brave person. She says, bravey is a self identifier for those who are willing to chase their dreams, even though it can be intimidating and scary. And she continues that chasing a dream is a never ending negotiation. As in you have to keep navigating and pivoting and adapting and persisting. It's a process that, unfolds continually and never in a straight line. In other words, the antidote to the stifling darkness of the plagues that the Egyptians experienced is being a bravey. It's being a dreamer. Once again, the words of Amanda Gorman blaze forth for me. We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it, we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So while we once asked, how could we possibly prevail over catastrophe? Now we assert, how could catastrophe possibly prevail over us? That King quote that I mentioned a couple times already tonight, it says that darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. But this week, it feels to me like what we really should be saying is not only light can do that, but only deliberate, optimistic, positive action can do that only bravery can do that. Only a bravey can really da- drive out the darkness. So maybe the plague of darkness was the natural response to the moral and ethical inertia of the Egyptians, that they sat and watched the Israelites be oppressed for so long that they simply became incapable of responding differently, personally or societally. And actually the thing that fascinates me most about the plague of darkness is that unlike all of the plagues before it, Moses never lifts the darkness, right? In all of the other plagues, Pharaoh's like, please make it stop. And Moses does something and the plague goes away. With the plague of darkness, the Torah just says that for three days, the Egyptians were stuck in darkness. We don't get any kind of response from Pharaoh. We don't get a response from Moses. So it's like, They sat there for three days and then what? The darkness just dissipated like one moment and then just poof, the darkness is all gone. I have trouble imagining that. And I especially have trouble imagining being an Egyptian as the darkness lifts, right? Like how long do you think it took the Egyptians to shift out of whatever position they had been stuck in and start to actually move around? How long until they shed the trauma of having been captured by that darkness? I'm guessing it took way longer than three days. And it will take more than four years for us to heal all of the wounds of the last four years. We, as a nation, sat in darkness, trapped by violent speech, by seemingly intractable intractable partisanship, by ceaseless attacks on marginalized and vulnerable groups, It's okay if after the exhale of Wednesday, it takes us some time to shed the stiffness of having been wrapped in that darkness for so long. It's okay if it takes us longer than one presidential term. Trauma almost always takes longer to heal from than it took to occur. And that doesn't mean that we won't eventually heal. We will. We need to keep moving, keep pivoting, keep creating energy and light. We need to be bravies. And we need to listen to Amanda Gorman again and again, right? Julie said this earlier. I'm going to say it now. Just keep repeating to yourself as a mantra that there is always light if only we are brave enough to see it. If only we are brave enough to be it. Shabbat shalom.
0: You've been listening to Shabbat Replay on Contact High, a podcast from Mishkan Chicago. If you enjoyed this sermon and want to join us live, tune in to Shabbat services through Facebook most Fridays of the month and through Zoom two Saturday mornings a month. Our schedule of services and programs can be found at mishkanchicago.org events, where there's also a link to donate and support our work and you can visit us on Facebook or Instagram at MishkanChicago. Until then, please feel free to subscribe and leave us a review. As always, we want to hear from you. This episode has been brought to you by me, Zach Weinberg, our editor and producer, Hannah Rehack, our rabbinical team, Rabbis Lizzie Heidemann and Dina Cowens, and our Director of Communications, Ashley Donahue. On behalf of Teen Mishkan...